violence is with us because it's adaptive. Our ancestors used violence and in many cases were good at violence. And that's one of the reasons you and I are both sitting here in this chair. We've had unbroken chain of successful ancestors. And violence, if you're dealing with uh, the threat of force or physical force, and a, there's a certain type of human being on this planet where the only thing that will stop them is the threat of force or physical force. So violence in that situation is not only necessary, it becomes a kind of moral imperative. You are about to enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense. Where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at Bullshito headquarters in Austin, Texas, this is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. You are fake news. Come on, man. Science is interesting. If you don't agree, you can fuck off. Let's do this. Thanks for having me on. I'm Matt Gordon. I started SBG, Straight Blast Gym, in 1992, so we're going on a short 30th year. It's a small school in Portland, Oregon, where I was kind of focused on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and self-defense and fighting just prior to the first UFC. It's grown over the years, so now we have locations all over the world, and we have professional fighters that people are aware of and Jiu-Jitsu people and other things, but about 98%, 99% of our clientele around the world is just everyday people looking to defend themselves and get in shape and yeah that's what i've been doing the last three decades excellent excellent and we'll get into this later too but you have a book coming out i think april 11th the gift of violence i do yeah i've been working yeah the gift okay. of so violence. you got a I've been lot of things on that going for, on yeah yeah i'm excited about that i've been working on that for about a decade <laughs> okay Good yeah luck. so so, like I said, we're, uh, we cross paths. I remember in the old days, the old school internet, before they were even using the term social media, yeah. on our forums, there was a video. And this is a classic. We pushed this on everybody that we could see. And I remember you were explaining the concept of what you called aliveness. And yeah. the point was, in the day, there were a lot of people that were still doing the old traditional martial arts and doing forms and not sparring and not doing exposing themselves to any risk whatsoever not really learning and so go ahead and tell us what aliveness is and and yeah we'll talk about that sure so my number one interest i think ever since i was a little kid and was aware of the existence of martial arts for whatever reason was what works in fighting and what doesn't work in fighting and i had been in enough fights to realize that sometimes things happen. You get you get taken down to the ground, you get in clinch, you get things like that. And so the conclusion that I'd come to is that some form of kickboxing or boxing is what we're going to need for stand-up, but I also need all the ranges. And so growing up, I would read about Jeet Kune concepts and the idea of fighting at four ranges and Bruce Lee's kind of utilitarian idea. So I was drawn to that, became an instructor in that, moved up here to Oregon where I taught for a couple of years became kind of disillusioned with Jikuno concepts, broke off to do my own thing, which was the start of SBG. And the single term that I that came to me that describes what works and what doesn't work and why something works and why something doesn't work was aliveness. And aliveness is just a word for the epistemology used 
to be able to learn what works in a fight. So working against a resisting opponent. And for something to be alive, it has to have timing, energy, and motion. It has to have all three qualities. If you remove one, it's no longer alive. And the one thing that all functional martial arts have, all arts that you see used in the UFC, anything that's going to be practical and have an application, one thing they all have in common is they have that opponent process in there, usually because they're sports. And so they care about winning. And so they have an alive training method. So wrestling, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, boxing, Muay Thai, so forth. And so that became my number one lesson, I think, what I wanted to get out to the world, what I wanted to talk about. And I created a video set. Gosh, I can't even remember what this would have been, but it would have been early to mid-90s is when the Aliveness VHS tapes came out. And then we advertised them in some of the magazines like Black Belt and Side Kung Fu and whatnot. And that's basically how my organization spread because I got a lot of people that came to me for no other reason than I just happened to think I, the emperor has no clothes. And I was the first person to kind of point it out in that way. And there was so many people that were frustrated and had gone through the same experience I had and agreed with what I was saying. And we kind of came together and that became the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in the video, you, you were using an analogy with chess and you were just working your opening moves and you're like, you can't learn to play a game of chess just by doing the opening moves. Right. People have an idea. I think it's, it still exists today. And there's a, even now there's a lot of misconceptions about aliveness. And it's one of the reasons why I have a chapter on it in my book. But when I talk about drilling, when we talk about drilling at SBG, we're talking about working with aliveness. And a lot of times when people talk about drilling, they're talking about repetitions, just dead pattern repetitions over and over again. And most martial arts, especially as you well know, the fake ones, most thrive off this kind of demonstration where somebody steps forward and throws a punch or swings a stick and kind of just stays in place. And then the master does all these different movements. And my point was you can do that for a, a thousand years. It's not going to teach you. No. You have for the feeder, not the demonstrator and watch what they're doing. And it can look quite beautiful. Aikido looks beautiful. I was just looking at a demonstration the other day and I thought, well, wow, that's super cool looking. It's great for the movies, but there's zero application in a fight because the it, without the compliant training partner who's basically doing the movement for you, you're just going to get crushed. Yeah. To explain it to people and explain how to train with a live miss. Explaining to people how to do it safely so they're not getting brain damage, they're not getting hurt. The idea that you kind of just throw people in the water and it's just... The idea that when I say aliveness, I mean sparring is another one of those misapprehensions I think people have. So over the years, we've tried to help people learn how to train with aliveness. And in my own gym, and I have black belts that are in their 70s that train on the mat and train with aliveness every day, but they do it in a healthy way and nobody gets hurt. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between going full out, trying to kill the other guy and just giving them competent resistance so that if it doesn't work, it's not going to work. But if they have right. the technique right, going to work. Right. So, yeah, I think we've all seen the videos of the Aikido guys that are the master just kind of stands there and people just run up to him, fall over, or flip. Exactly. That's And we thought that was a settled topic like 10 years ago. We, we were like, okay, we're going to start talking about more, a broader range of things. And then in the last few years, I, a lot of it, thanks to TikTok and those sorts of things, it's just come back. It's oh, yeah. everywhere now. In new forms, like, for example, Sistema, I think, would be the new popular ridiculous martial art. But 
that's a good example where they'll have one or two elements of aliveness. So they'll have a kind of random motion and a certain amount of timing, but there's the resistance that the way the other person is engaging with the demonstration, the person doing the demonstration is so ridiculous that it is just pure fantasy. But because it has a couple elements that make it appear realistic, I think it catches people's eye and they, and there's people always ask me, why do I think fake martial arts still exist? And I think it's like asking why religion still exists, why astrology still exists. I realized it's always going to be with us and putting out the message. So people who are sincere and want to know the difference, I think is important, but I have no illusions that it's ever going to die. There's always going to be some magic bullet martial art because there's people that want a magic bullet. And so there's going to be somebody to sell it to them. Yeah, of course. And it works great up until the point where they actually have to use it. So, yeah. and then it's too late. So problem solved. It's, a, it's like a really good grift to run, I guess. So, yeah. Um, so the gift of violence is a book you've been working on and it's actually a personal like ax to grind on my end because the term violence and in the last couple of years, maybe last decade or so, has been expanded in a certain way. And I think we probably agree on this, that violence is violent, right. but you know, violence isn't necessarily somebody yelling at you. So right. how do you define violence? Yeah, violence is physical harm being imposed on another human being, manipulation or pain through physical violence. It was funny, I happen to live in Portland, which is kind of the mecca for some of those stupid ideas. And there was, there was a saying that was very popular recently, and there's a lot of Portlanders that have it as yard signs that says silence is violence. And I'm like, actually, no, that's the exact opposite of violence. But people want to expand that notion, and it's a dangerous thing to do because real violence, of course, is something very serious and, and can leave victims hurt and changed for the rest of their life. And we don't want to minimize it by saying that somebody that says something you don't agree with happens to be violence. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's harm. And we can discuss things in terms of harm, but I think the thing that rubs me the wrong way is that people use the word violence just to give their issue a little bit more impact, to right. give it a little bit more, and they're appropriating that, and it makes it, it diminishes, like you said, the the impact of actual violence. So yeah. you can't compare somebody just being mean or nasty to you or saying horrible shit, which is awful, and that does cause harm, but right. you can't compare that to somebody actually hauling off and hitting you with a brick. Exactly. Yeah. Important distinction. Yeah, a little bit. So one of those comes with a uh, the hospital stay. The other one, maybe therapy if it was really bad. So yeah, and yeah, you're up in Portland, and there's a lot of stuff going up there. So I kind of wanted to touch on that because I've been to Portland once, and then I've watched Portland. So that's my experience with it. So yeah, yeah, it's devolved unfortunately, and it's not getting any better right now. I think it began quite a few years ago, but it took off in the. Destruction of it took off in earnest after the George Floyd incident. I think we could see that happen across the country, but especially here in Portland because it's particularly progressive. And so you had the demonization of police officers based on what is largely a myth that they were out trying to hunt African-Americans down, which is there's no evidence of that in Portland here. There never has been. But there was a kind of a hysteria, public hysteria about that, and it was really a moral panic. And unfortunately, policy was made on it. And they wound up, the first thing they did is they eliminated the gang violence response team, the, our gang task force here in Portland. They did that within a few months of the George Floyd incident. And what's happened since is tripping homicides and shootings in Portland have tripled. Oof. And of course, the good percentage, actually the majority of the victims are themselves African-Americans. So the very people, these uh, social justice warriors are trying to help have they, they've helped destroy these neighborhoods and cause a lot of real violence 
with some of these policies. So we're in a position now where Portland is vastly understaffed as far as police. They have and officers feel, and rightly so, that they have almost no backing by the city council, so they're hesitant to engage. And uh, yeah, violence is out of control. There was a time 10 years ago where I would have been three in the morning with my wife, would have been happy to walk downtown Portland unarmed, and it was a very safe, kind of beautiful city most of my life here, and now it's completely changed. And you combine that with the homeless encampments, which are basically drug camps, and we have over 700 in the city of Portland. So these are just areas where people pitch a tent and get high and, and they're covering the sidewalks and city blocks. And it's just getting worse and worse because um, I don't think it's that's ever going to change until people connect their the policies that have caused this to happen in their own voting choices, which hasn't quite happened before. It hasn't gotten bad enough. And unfortunately, I think it will. And then eventually it'll swing back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that pendulum swing that, that causes problems because, I mean, the George Floyd thing was terrible. And there was a there's a rightful outrage about how it was handled. It was not only professionally. Our cops don't always get the best training, particularly when it comes to grappling. Right. And that's another issue that I've been pushing. I mean, they're just a lot of them are just terrible. It was a couple of years ago. Andrew Yang, of all people, suggested that mm-hmm. everyone, every cop should at least be a blue belt in Brazilian right. Jiu-Jitsu. And and. That really would solve a lot of problems because then you wouldn't see somebody immediately going for their gun if they're like, oh, man, this is, I can take this guy. I, I know how to take somebody down, subdue them. And so many of the problems that we have is just people that are not talking to each other and then bad shit happens. And we're just everyone's on edge. We're right. yelling and stuff. And it's frustrating. And then, like you said, in your town, there's a, there's always been a segment of the people that are counterculture that want to do some kind of weird experimental commune do thing free range chickens and like i said i watch portlandia so and i live yeah. in austin so it, we're partner cities in a lot of ways but yeah i just i can't help but feel that on, on from what you're saying it there's a segment of those that are cynically taking advantage of all that anger and frustration and just using it to just cause chaos and if the police's police hands are tied and they're not being allowed to do their jobs and they're being undertrained to do their job it's just a nightmare so yeah, and unfortunately, the first thing that gets cut when they start to cut police funding is the training. And even if they have the resources for training, and most of them don't, when you're understaffed, then you you can't pull the officers off the street to get training in because they're you're always shorthanded. And you need everybody all hands on deck all the time. So the training and the procedures that we have, not just in Portland but around the country, have actually gotten worse. Yeah, no, I, I know, and it's a such a messy issue. We've talked about it a couple times in the podcast especially with regards to training the our I mean my personal position is absolutely more more grappling I really think that if you're not the most physically capable person you probably should be out on patrol right and that puts me in the hot water with a lot of people because I mean they're if you just look at the distribution of people by size most of the people on the smaller end are going to be female but yeah. what's a female officer going to do if she's in a situation where she's got a 250 pound guy probably on drugs or just having an emotional or mental issue and you can't lodge, you can't reason with them. You can't talk down. You're going to draw your gun and you're going to shoot somebody. And it's not going to be the outcome that you need. We don't have really good, less than lethal implements out there. This isn't the future. And we've got bullets and tasers don't always work and always hit them and pepper spray and all that stuff. It's just, it's substandard. So grappling really is like the, should be the go-to. And and I don't understand why people don't want to, don't want to acknowledge this. I know it's a simplistic answer to a lot of the 
issue of what people call police violence, but it really was. It, I've known so many cops and I've wrestled. I've rolled with cops. There's some that are that try, they come in, they want to be really good at jujitsu and grappling. Best ones I've known were like high school wrestlers because they can be in a situation like, okay, I don't have to pull my gun because I can double leg you if I have to. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting seeing, hearing your perspective from somebody that's on the ground up in Portland because that city's seen some stuff. Yeah. No, it's terrible. We had 96 homicides in 2022, which is the record since we've been keeping track of it in Portland. We've had more murders than the city's ever had. And you think that would wake people up. But like I said, I don't think it's gotten bad enough yet. So uh, speaking of violence in general, so tell us about the book. What made you want to write it and what message do you want people to get from it at the end of the day? Yeah, I've had the, the idea for this book in my head for a long time, and I wanted to write about the lessons that we've learned training with aliveness over the years at the gym. I wanted to write a book that addressed, you know, a sizable percentage of the people that are drawn to martial arts. And this, everybody that signs up at one of my gyms, they go through an interview process in the beginning so we can discover a little bit about them and find out why they want to train. And a lot of people have been picked on or they've been victims of real violence. They've had abuse situations and they're coming to functional martial arts. They're coming to jujitsu and, and to combat sports as a way to try and overcome that, which is great because I think it is a huge part of the answer. And so I wanted to write a book that addressed those people in particular and talked about, talked about the issue from their perspective. And the other thing, as you well know, one of the one of the criticisms that's constantly leveled at people who do functional martial arts is that we're sports people. And when it comes to training for the quote unquote street, you have to have, there's all these different things that, that for some reason we're unaware of, even though we have the best epistemology for functional training, everything else before the fight must not be there. And so I also wanted to address that in one book where I can say, this, in my opinion, is what you need to know. All the pre-contact, pre-physical information about things people need to be aware of to be able to stay safe is in that book as well. So I hope I killed a few birds with one stone. Yeah, no, I'm, I remember it was you that said the, the just add dirt, right? The, the, right. the quote about, yeah, if you if you can fight, compete in a limited rules, like sporting interaction, you're going to be better at doing the all the rules lists, all the no holds barred stuff, fighting and eye gouging stuff, especially I mean, if you can get a dominant position in a right. scramble with some random person, who's going to be the one that's more likely to get kicked in the sensitive spots or poked or bit? Yeah. hundred percent. The thing I always try and point out to people is the root skills and the delivery systems of stand up, clinch and ground don't change. You know, there's not a special headlock escape that we use for the parking lot. That's going to be different from what we use on the mat or what's different from what you use in MMA. The stakes change and some of the tactics and strategy will change. And that's what I address in the book. But those core physical movements, your ability to throw a punch or to break free of a grip or hold someone down, those stay with you and those transcend the theater of operations. And not only that, but just the physical contact that comes with a combat sport, no matter what combat sport it is, the pushing and the pulling and the being used to that level of aggression and feeling that is also so important and missing oftentimes in the fantasy-based martial arts. And you don't want the first time you felt that or the first time you've had to operate in that environment be when you're attacked or assaulted. No, you want your muscles to react because they have reacted to similar things in the past. They know what's coming. They know right. how much pressure 
that you need to apply when you get this pressure applied to you. Yeah, it's it's frustrating to understand to explain this to other people because a lot of like what I call normies, people that have never trained in martial arts that, or just seen them on TV, that they don't really have a grasp of this. And a lot of them just kind of, especially the ones on the more progressive end of the spectrum, the more more highly educated people in general, not all of them, because there's some really smart people out there that have also done martial arts, but they don't get the difference between, well, violence and harm and adversity. And so they, there's it's just no one big thing. It's being just uncomfortable, being made uncomfortable is very little than just suffering. I mean, anybody that's done a class that, that does sparring or a sport like wrestling or, or samba or anything like that, you're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You're going to, and in order to get better at that, you got to learn to main, to weather, be more resilient against a certain level of discomfort. And you got to subject yourself. You're, you might be feeling like crap in the morning, but you're, drag yourself to the class knowing you're going to get crushed all day long but you're still there because you've developed the sort of more tolerance to it absolutely being learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations is a huge part of surviving in a combat sport and it's a huge benefit and asset if you ever have to engage in physical conflict with somebody outside the gym yeah just in in life in general i mean i work at a lab and our job is crazy stressful especially with like here in Austin right now, we're having like a quadruple like mini pandemic. COVID's still going around. It's coming back. We've got RSV. We've got the flu. We've got strep is popular right now with the kids, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's wild. But, and everybody's, and when people ask me, it's like, how can you remain so calm all the time? I was like, well, I'm not getting shot at. No one's punching me. I'm in air conditioning. I mean, it's just a job. Right. It's busy, but so yeah, it, it gives you a perspective. I think I, I am a big proponent of getting people to get out of their comfort zone and, and jiu-jitsu and stuff like that. It's such a great way to do it. Yeah, so, super important. So when it comes to your book, how much do you get into the philosophical nature of violence? Because one of my favorite quotes is by, uh, was it Robert Hein? And we, I think everybody's seen it, even in the movie Starship Troopers, is like violence has solved more problems in history than any other factor. Right. And so a lot of people don't want to accept that. But right. at the end of the day, what are you going to do? We, right. we solved the problem of you know, the Nazis with violence. We didn't solve that with diplomacy. We solved right. that by sending a bunch of our best and youngest kid, a whole generation over there with M1s. And that was violence. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's exactly why I start off talking about that in the book. So the first chapter is on the nature of violence. And the part that I think that you're addressing is violence is with us because it's adaptive. Our ancestors use violence and in many cases we're good at violence. And that's one of the reasons you and I are both sitting here in this chair. We've had unbroken chain of successful ancestors and violence. If you're dealing with uh, the threat of force or physical force, and there's a certain type of human being on this planet where the only thing that will stop them is the threat of force or physical force. So violence in that situation it's not only necessary, it becomes a kind of moral imperative. So I talk about folly of pacifism in my book. I, and on the other side of it, you, if we look at two extremes, the other side of it, you have a group that makes a fetish of violence. They kind of glamorize it and, and engage in what I call boy speak, which is a kind of this bravado about violence. And both poles are equally negative. And one of the goals with my book is to help people have a healthy relationship to the topic and a healthy relationship to the topic is going to be one that doesn't demonize violence because it's sometimes, as I said, a moral imperative and doesn't make a fetish of violence and glamorize violence because that's not appropriate or healthy either. And you adopt 
a path that allows you to look at it as it actually is and be able to see it for what it is and then engage with it in a way that's going to be healthy for your life. Yeah, yeah, that's important. And we talk a lot, especially on the show, just in general now, and it's good that we're doing it, about especially young men and masculinity and their issues of how to resolve. I mean, there's nothing more dangerous than a than a young dude that is just, he's amped up on his own natural androgen. And he's trying to assert himself and find his place in the world. And a lot of them do that by just like indiscriminate violence. So yeah. keeping that in perspective is, is useful. Yeah, it's funny you mention that actually, because that's actually the second thing that I address in the book. One of the things I say is anybody that looks at the data, if you just look at the raw data for violent crime here in the United States, or but also around the world, and you don't come to the conclusion that at the heart of much of that problematic violence is the issue of maturity, then I don't think you've understood the data. And so what you have is you have a large percentage of boys from fatherless homes. We're basically in a situation where they're raising themselves and raising each other. I actually draw a comparison to a situation that I had when I was on safari in Africa one time, and they had an issue in Pelansburg National Park with young male elephants that were going around and killing rhinos. And the reason was they hadn't transported the bulls to the park because they didn't have straps that were big enough for the helicopter. And it was pure mayhem. They'd form gangs. They'd go around and kill and torture these rhinos. And as soon as they put the proper amount of bulls back into the ecosystem, the problem stopped. And I don't think that's a that's an issue that's limited to just elephants. And so anywhere you're going to have high rates of out of wedlock birth rates, you're going to have high rates of crime. And this is true around the world. It's true in the United States. And in fact, I think that's a better indicator of how much violent crime is going to be in a particular area than economic ones. And so learning how to handle that, learning how to deal with that, understanding that maturity, self-awareness, impulse control, empathy, those things have to be taught and ingrained in young men from a very early age. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem. And the only solution at that point is more police officers. But it's a, it's a short-term solution. The long-term solution is getting mentors and fathers, especially fathers in the home, to be able to help these young men. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people see it in those terms, and that's a problem. The other thing that I like to harp on is, if you think about it, and this actually, I was on Do Nothing Wrong, Did Nothing Wrong podcast the other day. Griff Somke, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu back belt up in Seattle, and he's got a show, and it's really good. And one of the things that they brought up was that it just, they threw it out there. It was, we didn't really talk about it, but a lot, every young boy, for the most part, they go to school, they're surrounded by women, except for maybe the coach, the sports coach, athletics classes. But it's all women. And from there, we're, women are raising our young men, and they don't really see a lot of, just because our, the way our institutions are set up, they don't really see a lot of guys, uh, like male role models in person that they can look up to just in their daily lives, especially. Right. And so how long do our kids spend at school versus how much do their parents even get to see them in general? As right. they get older. Absolutely. So, yeah, you're right about that. So I'm looking forward to the book. Yeah. I, I actually have a pre order to copy just the other day. So, so I, I got it on a Kindle just because I appreciate that. Thank I'm you. I'm a Kindle nerd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, but I think it, what would you want to get out as the core elevator pitch message to, to get somebody interested in just getting a copy of this because they needed it there? What's the central thesis that people need to hear from? That's a good question. Violence is natural. It's been with us 
since we've been on this planet. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to disappear. And you want to engage with it, understand it, and be able to deal with it in a way that's healthy, that doesn't follow these extremes, to be able to keep yourself and those you love safe, but also be able to understand violence, why it happens, how it happens, and be able to navigate that in a healthy way, I think is super important. And so what I tried to do was explain it from the very beginning, the nature of violence, where it comes from, why it exists, all the way through what is actually a threat and what's not a threat, and finally, physical training. So I do end the book with a chapter on aliveness where I encourage people to engage in combat sports. And in one way, the book is one very long 400-page argument for why that's something I think pretty much everybody should do. Obviously, I'm partial to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu since I, it's my first love, but really any combat sport is going to be better than nothing. And having that physical training, but also all the information that I give beforehand about who commits violence, why they commit violence, where it happens, how to be able to navigate it is really the main point of the book. So my friend Paul Sharp, fellow SBG instructor, has a saying that I really like that I used in the book, which is one of the things we do at SBG is make good people more dangerous to bad people. And so at the end of the day, I think what greater gift can you give someone than freedom from manipulation through physical force? And so here is that gift. Here is how to how to achieve it and hopefully help a lot more good people become a lot more dangerous to bad people. Yeah, no, I am totally on board with that. That's great. And you have straight blast gyms all over the world. Have you picked up on any differences and differences with regards to the, the situation, the violence, level of violence, indiscriminate or applied in different places? I think I think Iceland you've been to recently. You've got a oh, yeah. school there. My is, wife's Icelandic. Oh, wow. That, okay, yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, how is the culture there different than, let's just say, the United States in general? Because you're pretty violent people. Yeah, that's a good question. One of the topics that I address in the book, actually, is I talk about Scandinavia because a lot of times what progressives will do is they'll say, when you bring up the subject of -of out-of-wedlock birth rates and the correlation that has to violent crime and fatherless homes and why that's so destructive for a community, there's really only about two or three counter arguments that you're going to run into. And one of the most common ones that gets thrown out all the time is, well, what about Scandinavia? What about Sweden and Norway? They don't have that. They don't get married the way we do here in the United States, and they don't have that level of violence. And that's a misunderstanding of Scandinavian culture, because Scandinavians in general are fairly conservative people in their behavior. And actually, when you're talking about, especially the formative years from birth up through teenage years, the very small percentage of Scandinavian families where both the mother and father for that child don't live in the same home. So they don't get legally married the way we do here in the United States necessarily because it's a slightly different culture, but they are together. They cohabitate and they raise the child together. So the out of work, when you consider it that way, the out of wedlock birth rate in places like Sweden and Iceland is actually very, very small. Yeah. And then to the next point is, well, where do you see the violence? Well, you see the violence in the same community. You see the violence in fatherless young men. So if we look at the number one perpetrator of violence, not just in the United States, but around the world, you're going to be talking about a young man between the ages of 15 and 22 who comes from a fatherless home. That is the vast majority of every violent criminal that you can line up and every perpetrator of violent crime. And that's true, not just in the United States, that's true around the world. And in the United States, you're going to have different communities and places that have higher out of wedlock birth rates. 
And where you have those communities, you have a great deal of violence. Yeah. Yeah. So like from Scandinavia, it's not so much specifically the wedlock, but it's the family structure. Right. Like the support system, the somebody having one of two parents at least to make sure your homework's getting done and you're staying on the right track. Because like we're all being worked to death out here these days and it's hard for somebody to just keep it up. And even with two, our parents, grandparents especially, could have a family and have one income. And the dad at the time would have come home and everything's situated. And we had roles that, you know, yeah, things change, but one of two parents was there at all times to keep an eye on stuff. And we don't have that. So, so yeah, I mean, there are arguments to be made, even for the most progressive person, about the value of a of a genuine, strong family structure. And I don't see why that even has to be a point of contention. It doesn't matter who you care about, you know, what you're into, but people, it takes people to raise a child. It takes adults, responsible adults. So it's one of the things that people mistake me for being on the left a lot. And I, it's not so much that, I mean, I, it's, labels don't really matter. It's what works. It's the policies that, that make everything better, that reduce crime and suffering and misery and some i mean i I think somebody would give some pushback on the reasons why a lot Mm -hmm. of fathers aren't in households for Mm -hmm. example like the war on drugs which i'm not sure what your position on that is but just yeah that that breaks homes because i mean yeah drugs aren't the best thing that you should be doing but you make dumb decisions as a young man like in general just being alive you you make dumb decisions like all day long as a young man and some of those uh the more you're subjected to crime, to being criminalized for your dumb decisions. You're going to be put in the system. And once you get the system, it's hard to get out of that. And that just destroys the family structure. So, I mean, I think we could attack that problem a bunch of different ways. But then again, and I do think that we agree on this, there's not going to be some sort of science fiction-y future in which there's no violence. Right. So, and it's going to, it's part of life. Life is violent. You violently eat that salad, but you rip the lettuce off the ground and you shove it in your mouth and you destroy it and life feeds on life. So Absolutely. what we need to do is just, yeah, minimize the amount of suffering. So this, I think we're totally on the same sheet of music here. This is good to hear. I know our audience is all over the place these days, but I, I think you're going to be happy to get that message. Yeah, I agree. Why we've gotten to a situation where out of wedlock birth rates started to climb, which really happened at the beginning of the sixties is a topic that would require a whole different book. So I don't really, I don't, I didn't have the time or the space. My book's already 400 pages to get into it and that, but that doesn't change the reality of it. And you would think, you know, what I'm saying seems obvious and seems like common sense and who would be against that. But I was actually kind of surprised when I was doing research for the book and I was talking, I was looking into these arguments. There is a large population in the United States when they come from the political left for whatever reason. And I myself don't consider myself right wing. So it's not that, but that is anti-family in a sense that would strongly argue against um, against what I'm saying. And the idea that fathers in the home is even important or necessary, as shocking as that is, those that group does exist. And I spent a little bit of time in the book, not much, but a little bit of time in the, in the book addressing the fallacies of their arguments. That's yeah, I know. And that's important because I mean, as well-intentioned as some of those people are, or at least think they are uh, right. on topics like that and society changes over time. There, there is an underlying nature that we conform to that just because of the way that we, the way that we got here, the way that kept our ancestors alive, like you referenced, and there are successful strategies for that. And there are some ones that are not successful. And right. I mean, the people are going to play with it. Society's going to shift over time. But at the end of the day, it, 
having at least two people that are invested in their in young people and their children. And let's face it, there's nobody's gonna be more invested in child than the people whose genes they they have passed to that child. So I mean that that's that, that's just basic human psychology. I, I never thought I until I had a son, I was just like, okay, yeah, kids. I mean, I'm like the kids in the, uh, I did never affected me to hear a kid crying. I was like, oh man, that sucks. Okay. But it was an abstract thing. But now when I hear a kid crying, I'm like, oh crap, urgent problem. I got to deal with it. Right. So, so yeah, you're right. And we have to focus on, I mean, I almost said focus on the family. <laughs> I was about to get canceled for that. No, but it's true. So, I mean, yes, we do. We just maybe not Dr. James Dobson. Yeah. <laughs> So oh, this is this has been a great conversation. Is there, aside from your schools, the upcoming book, which comes out on April 11th, you can pre-order it now. Well, I'm getting better at this sort of thing. If you can. I appreciate um, that. Yeah. So is there anything that you want to let the rest of the world know about? Seminars, tours coming up, that kind of thing? Well, yeah, I always have a lot of seminars throughout the year. We try and post those on straightblastgym.com. So if people are interested in my organization or the martial arts aspect of what I do, they can go to straightblastgymalloneword.com, look under schedule. My, my new schedule should go up by the end of the month. I usually organize it all during the month of January. And like you said, they can go to Amazon right now and pre-purchase the book if they want, either Gift of Violence or look it up under my name. And I do have a personal website where I put writing up on violence and different topics, and I'm in the process of revamping it, but that's mattborn.org. My personal email address is at all of those sites, and I would encourage anybody that has any questions to feel free to reach out to me, and I always try and return all my email, and yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Excellent, excellent. This is great. This has been a great conversation. And yeah, so everyone, Matt Thornton, well, thanks for being on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever the hell you're listening to this and leave a comment while you're at it or an insult. Or if you're feeling super frisky, head on over to patreon.com slash and check out the benefits for contributing to our 501c3 nonprofit organization for fighting BS. Remember, all contributions are tax deductible if you care about that sort of thing. If you don't, whatever, it still helps. And you can brag about it to your friends, or if you don't have friends, then, well, we'll we'll be your friends. I mean, if you give us money. Crap, I probably should have not left that part in. Anyway, bye!